Heavenly Father, we are grateful as we are about to see in your word that you are a God who cares for all our needs. None are too insignificant for you. None are too physical or material for you. And so this morning, God, I pray for the folks I, I know who are pretty sick right now, the Ladones, of Catherine, others in our church. We pray that they would experience the healing power of God. We believe you didn't stop healing after the first century. Because you have told us a thousand times in your word that you don't change. That unlike us, you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we pray that you would bring healing to those who need it in this community. What I pray especially this morning for men and women who come in every Sunday all too aware of a chronic illness. And it distracts them. It threatens to draw their eyes away from you. And we cry out to you, our Father, that you would fill them with a new measure of your Holy Spirit that for the next hour or so, they would not be aware of their pain. And that the eyes of their heart would be fixed solely on King Jesus. And that you would bring joy to our hearts, even as our bodies with this world are longing for redemption. Thank you that you're enough for us until we get home. And we pray that today we would trust you more and that you would give me power from on high. For I'm not sufficient to preach the word of a great God. And Why you don't just show up and do it yourself, sometimes I wonder. But I believe that as we have as a people sought to speak your word in a thousand ordinary moments this week, that today you will do the same. And through my weak mouth, God will speak. Do that. Yet again. Amen. Amen. I wonder what comes to your mind when you picture a theologian. Maybe some old guy in a beard and a robe glasses, reading some old book in a library that's in some foreign language. I I don't know what comes to your mind. Webster's Dictionary says a theologian is a student or a specialist in theology. If theology is the study of God or a particular belief about God, then a theologian, very simply, is somebody who studies God or who specializes in a particular belief about God. So I want to ask you again, what, what kind of person comes into your mind when you picture a theologian? If you ask me how many theologians there are in this room, you know what I would do? I would count every face I'm looking at. And here's why. Every single one of us lives with some sort of belief about God. Every single one of us. I don't care if you haven't been in church in 10 years. You have a belief about God. Every one of us does. You cannot help but have a belief about God. 
But Matthew say, I'm an atheist. Well, what about that? I don't believe in God. I would argue you are still a theologian. You still have a belief about God. Namely, he doesn't exist. Matthew, I'm not an atheist. I'm just an agnostic or a skeptic. I think there's a possibility he exists, but none of us can really know what he's like. Friend, if that's you, I still win. (laughs) You're a theologian. You have a particular belief about God, namely that if he does exist, we can't know what he's like. That's a belief about God. Every single one of us has a belief about God, which means the question is not if we have a belief, friend, but whether or not your belief is correct and on what authority you can know that your belief, what you think about God, is in fact correct. Because quite frankly, if the only authority you can point to for your belief about God is you, I'm not persuaded. And quite frankly, you shouldn't be either. Who are we to think that we can, of our own minds, conceive truth about God? And it's the very fact that every one of us has a belief. And every one of us has to wrestle with this question of whether or not our belief is true and on what authority we know it is true that we turn in gladness to the Word of God. Because this is a book written by men and inspired by God. And it's inspired by God in the sense that men wrote this, actual men wrote these words as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And the content of what they wrote, and what I'm about to read, is designed by God to reveal God. It's one of the most important things you can ever know about the Bible is that it's not somebody's thoughts about God. It's God speaking about himself. And it's authoritative, which means that we need to ask whether our belief about God lines up with what Scripture says about God. The question that Mark In the Gospel of Mark, we've been studying for some time. Ask and answers over and over and over again. It's so simple. Who is Jesus? Who is this Son of God? In a sense, that question is what the entire Bible is here to answer. And yet, in section after section, God is very particular with us and and very kind, church, to, to kind of take our eyes and cause us to focus on something very specific, particular, about who he is. And I think he wants to do that today. So who is Jesus? We're going to read a familiar section of scripture that answers he is a good shepherd. May God fit that into our grid. Wherever we're thinking thoughts about him that are anything other than that or different than that, may the Lord this morning as we read this 
even before I preach it, just as the word of God is read, may he adjust our beliefs about him so we believe Jesus is a good shepherd. Hear the word of the Lord. Mark 6, beginning in verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore... He saw a great crowd. And he had compassion on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place. The hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and and villages and and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish, and those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. To some of you, that's as familiar as flannel graphs in Sunday school. Which makes it all the more important, does it not? To realize what God's actually saying. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a religious guru. He's not just a guy who heals people, John the Baptist, Elijah, or another prophet. He is our great shepherd. And Mark convinces us of that. You've got to love how God never tells us something in his word and says, well, just because. I mean, he has a right to. And I, as a parent, I'm grateful for the presence of that card in my pocket. I'm dad. That's why. But God doesn't just say, Jesus is a good shepherd. Jesus is a great shepherd. He proves it. And I believe he does that in a couple ways. Mark shows us that Jesus perceives our need. He actually sees it. Jesus exposes our need so we can see it. And then Jesus fulfills our need or satisfies our need or meets our need. He sees it. He helps us see it. And then he satisfies it. That's what convinces us he's a good shepherd. So let's begin with the first five verses. Jesus is a great shepherd because he perceives our need. Notice how Mark, I love this, takes his time 
establishing the setting for the miracle. I mean, on one level, he could have just said, uh, then Jesus fed 5,000 people. And the next day, he doesn't do that. He gives us a backstory. He gives us a backstory that in chapter 6, Jesus sent out his 12 apostles, disciples, groups of two, to do ministry, preach the gospel, heal people, cast out demons, and they come back to him, and they're just ecstatic. You can almost kind of feel it in verse 30. They come back, it's like, Jesus, you'll never guess what happened. You know all that crazy stuff you do, preaching, healing people, casting out demons? Yeah, guess what? We did all of it. Totally. All of it. They're excited. And I wonder if you were Jesus, how you would have responded. And I was thinking about this. If I were Jesus, how would I have responded? A couple options. Hey, guys, that's great, but, but let's remember it's just the second quarter. Okay? So don't get too excited. We've got a long game to play. Here's your next, next assignment. Everybody ready? A little water. Let's go. Ready, set, for Jesus. And that's an option. I mean, the other option, quite frankly, more tempting to me, I think, would be, Oh, boys, um, can we just remember, you seem to have forgotten something. I'm the only one who's really kicking it strong around here. I mean, that looked cool, but I totally gave you the power to do it. So why don't you come back to me when you have something really new and exciting to share? Grow up. I'm God, you're not. But he doesn't do that. And it's really remarkable. He doesn't do that. What's he say? He says, guys, why don't you come away with me and rest? Why don't you rest? I know you're tired. I know you're exhausted. Some of you really need some food. I can see it in your eyes. And I want you to have some time just to eat. Does it strike you as odd that Jesus would talk like that or care about that? Following Jesus, risk of making an understatement, is really hard work. Really hard work. Because following Jesus is a choice to help other people follow Jesus, right? So, so Christianity is not like Buddhism. God hasn't called us to a path of progressive spiritual enlightenment where we just be kind of become distanced from this world. No, what, what has he done? God's given us a mission, right? Think hard work. Jesus worked hard. As his people, he calls us to work hard. He's given us a mission to tell people about who he is and what he's done through his life, death, and resurrection, the good news of the gospel. That's at the core of our mission. And sharing that news and helping all the people around us, starting in your own family, connect the stuff in their life to the good news of the gospel and seeing those connections, let me tell you, that is hard work. It was hard work for the disciples back then. It's hard work today. Really hard work. Whether the people you're discipling, I might add, are working in a cubicle or sitting in a high chair. It's hard work. And so, friend, take heart. Take heart. In the moment when it feels like, oh, I've been there. When it feels like 
Nobody else realizes how crazy tired you are. How wiped out, how done with disciple making. How ready for solitary confinement you are. And what makes it worse is sometimes we feel like nobody else even gets it. Help me, help me, fix me, help me. Wah, Bobby. You know who gets it? Jesus does. He gets it. He is intimately aware of how much you need rest. Because following him is hard work. He's not alarmed by your tiredness, friend. He's not a taskmaster looking to beat you senseless. He's a shepherd who knows the needs of his sheep. And he actually knows your need for rest better than you do. <laughs> Notice the disciples didn't ask Jesus if they could rest. They didn't kind of shuffle up and, I hate to break it, but, but I am just whooped. Okay, well, I mean, 30 minutes. No, it's as if Jesus recognizes their need before they even do. And he doesn't just say, anybody want a break? Um, you know, water and oranges for those who need it. No. What's he say? Come away with me. You realize that's authority speaking? That's not a suggestion. That's a command. And that's the same voice that commanded the storm and it shut up. And commanded the world and it appeared. That voice commands us as the followers of Jesus Christ. Come away and rest. Not a suggestion, a command. Rest, friend, in the fight to follow Jesus is not an unfortunate necessity. It's a gift from God. He perceived his followers needed rest. He perceived their need. But he also perceived the need of the crowd. Perceive the need of the crowd. Notice the plan for rest didn't quite turn out as expected. And it's instructive that the first person responding when the boat hits shore is not the apostles. It's Jesus. We can only wonder what they were thinking when they saw the great crowd. A few thousand people waiting for them. But we have to remember, Jesus isn't Captain America. He doesn't have this sort of endless source of unbelievable energy. He is fully God, but he's also fully man. And that means that he must have been as much, if not more tired, tired than all the apostles. So when they get ashore, just imagine this. The last thing, like utter opposite of what you want to see, is 10,000 people. It, for those of you who enjoy backpacking or just disappearing in the woods like I do, it would be as if... After six months of planning, you got on the Appalachian Trail and you were in the middle of a 200-mile train of Boy Scouts. So much for a long time, right? Jesus is a man. And so again, if, if I were Jesus, the next phrase, verse 34, look at this, for me would have gone something like this. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and immediately jumped back in the boat put his earplugs in and pushed out. Pulled out his fishing rod. I'm going to get a break. 
But he didn't do that. Look at verse 34. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them. Deep-seated empathy, concern, a love welled up from his innermost being. Why? Because he saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd. Do you realize, friend, God didn't make you to do life apart from God? He didn't. Don't, Don't go thinking that. You were created for dependence. You were created for intimacy with your Creator. Not just on Sundays, but every moment of the day. Lord, I need you every what? Every hour I need you. We could just keep adding more verses and breaking down the second fractions. All the time I need you. Which is why God describes us in the Bible with a particular animal. Sheep. And in case you spent too much time in Hallmark or a family Christian bookstore, when God says you're like a sheep, He's not flattering you. (laughs) You know, he's not. The the, the porcelain figurine would make you think so. And, you know, you look at those and isn't it funny how, like, if there's kind of crazy sheep and then one just sort of peacefully nestled with a Savior, our eyes are kind of drawn to, oh, that must be me, I'm that sheep. Well, quit flattering yourself, okay? Sheep are stupid. Sheep are senseless. Sheep are really dumb. Sheep make ignorant decisions that do not have their best interest in mind. Sheep can't even find good food, and when they start eating, they're eating bad food. Sheep die without shepherds. He's not flattering you. Without a shepherd, sheep don't survive physically. Without a shepherd, friend, you don't survive spiritually. And the reason is that that all of us, like sheep, are born in sin, right? We're, We're born in corruption. We enter this world with this sheep will that's inclined toward evil and enslaved to disobeying God, which means nobody has to teach us how to murder, how to lie, how to, how to steal, how to commit adultery, how to be racist, how to abuse people or hurt people. Those desires just well up within us. I mean, none of you parents out there have ever had to say, you know, I just wish I could read a book on training my kid to disobey. No. You don't. It it wells up within us. We have a sinful nature, and that nature, both in its inclinations and actions, separates us from God. And, I might add, ensures condemnation in the courtroom of heaven. Separates us from God and condemns us. Which is why Isaiah says, all we, like what? Like sheep, have gone astray. We've wandered from God. We've turned everyone, no exception, don't go writing yourself out. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. That means that your greatest need in this life, sheep, sheep, is not the world's best job. It's not sexual satisfaction. It's not a bigger retirement account. It's not the friend you've always longed for or the spouse you wish you had or the kids that you wish would walk home from school and into your house one day. You know what your greatest need is? It's reconciliation with God. That's your greatest need. Why? Because we're sheep. 
And all we like sheep have gone astray. We need a shepherd. We desperately need somebody to show us the way back to right relationship with God. Jesus knew the crowd needed a shepherd to do that for them. And you and I are no different. We can't save ourselves. We can't shepherd our own soul back to God. And whenever we look to other people to rescue us, don't we do this? Whenever we look to other people to rescue us or treasure us or or make our life what we think it's supposed to be, it never works. Never works. And we just end up more hurt and disillusioned with everything than when we started. When we look to people to shepherd our souls, to right what has gone wrong in us, to, to fix the ache in our life. When we look to people to do that, it gets worse. And that's when people commit suicide. And quite frankly, that is a rational decision on one level. If all you're looking at to shepherd your soul is the man or woman sitting next to you. Because they can't do that. And when we look to them to shepherd us, we just end up hurt. Ezekiel 34, it happened to Israel. Listen how God indicts her abusive leaders. Israel looked to these these men, prophets, priests, and kings, to shepherd her, look what they did. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled them. Maybe that describes what some of you have experienced through abuse or neglect in your relationships with people. So, they were scattered. there wasn't a shepherd. They became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Friend, if you identify with that and feel as though before God you are a straying sheep, you are a wandering sheep, then know this. God has promised in his word he's coming after you. He's coming after you. Why? What makes him that good shepherd? Because he gets your need. He perceives your need. He perceives our physical needs, rest and and food for his followers. He perceives our spiritual needs, the good news of the gospel for the crowd. And, listen, he perceives all of them with tenderness and compassion. I was thinking about that this week. There have been several days when my three-month-old son just will not quit crying. Wah! 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 You know, and mom's at Kroger. And, and I'm thinking, I am done with you. You know, door, crib, boop. Door, monitor, eh, no. You know, walk out. <laughs> Sorry, Lisa. And, and I'm just done. Do you know God's not like that? When he perceives your need, he does not say, oh, goodness gracious, you again, you've been crying for 30 years. <laughs> no, friend, he's compassionate. He's tender. He 
He's not angry. He isn't fed up with you. He's not thinking, why don't you have your spiritual act together? You know who says that to you? The evil one. Not your shepherd. Because he's aware of your need and he's affected by your need. That's how you know he's a good shepherd. Because he sees it. He perceives it. But he doesn't stop there. Secondly, he exposes our need. He exposes it. And I have a word for the men. Guess what gender tends to be the last group to admit need? <laughs> so says the man. Oh, it just proves the point, does it not? I tend to be the last person to realize just how physically and spiritually needy I am. And I don't think it's just because I'm a guy. I think it's because I'm proud and I'm self-sufficient and I live in America where you get paid to be those things. I like to think I have the resources it takes to handle whatever challenge comes my way. So here's what God tends to do in my life. He tends to put me in situations where I run smack into the wall of my insufficiency and inadequacy. It's like his M.O. with Williams. Which, which honestly is why I have, you may not believe this, I have a love-hate relationship with, with preaching. I love preaching the Word of God to you. There, there is nothing I would rather do. But every week as I'm preparing in my office, I feel so weak, so inadequate. I, I look at this word. I think, well, maybe, maybe we'll just pull out a flannel graph. <laughs> it's like, what do we, what do we say, Lord? I, I'm weak. And yet week after week, he calls me to do something, go figure, that just confronts me with that takes my face and, and is this, he grabs and says, Williams, look at that weakness. I want you to feel it. I don't think I'm alone. God does that over and over again to his people in the Bible. And so look at verse 35. His disciples come to him with, with an understandable problem. It's, it's getting dark. There's no food. You can't order pizza. And they come to Jesus with a, a reasonable solution. Verse 36. Why don't you just send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat? That is eminently rational. It works like this. Premise A. We're in the wilderness. Premise B. The wilderness has no food. Premise C. Leave the wilderness. <laughs> Good leadership boys. I mean, today... Those kind of people write books. Because the rest of us aren't smart enough to figure that out. But that's not what Jesus had in mind. And if you're familiar with the Gospels, you know, you can feel it coming. When the disciples go into, like, counsel the Savior mode, it just never goes well. There's no good exit sequence from, hey, Jesus, come on over here. I got an idea. No. 
it, it never goes well. And his response stuns them. What's he say? Look back at the word of God. Verse 36. They come with a solution. Verse 37. Jesus answers. You give them something to eat. Boink, boink. (laughs) And their response is just dripping with sarcasm. We can miss this. What what do they say? You want us to go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give to them to eat, that's, that's practically an entire year's worth of money for a worker back then. And they obviously don't have that kind of money, and so the response is pretty much a nice way of saying, Jesus, you are crazy. We can't do that. Have you ever noticed how quick we are to forget the power of God? We are good. Good, good, good. Professional power of God forgetters. God does amazing things in our life. I mean, remember, these are the same guys, same guys, who just finished healing people, casting out demons. I doubt many of you have done that. And preach the gospel with no formal education. And they come back, what do they say? I can't do that. We forget. We assess the situation. We look at the parenting challenge, the custody battle, the work project, the marriage conflict, the the opportunity for ministry, and we conclude that equals impossible. You want me to do that, Jesus, with them? That's crazy. And yet nothing, nothing is more effective in exposing our need for Jesus than being on mission with Jesus. Nothing. Nothing more more effective in the world in exposing your need than the call to follow Christ. You want to be intimately confronted with your weakness and neediness and insufficiency? You follow him. And Jesus knew how he was going to meet that need. But notice he refused to do it until he had confronted the disciples with their inability to do it. There's a reason for that. Jesus' mission wasn't primarily to fill empty stomachs. Jesus' mission was to confront spiritually hardened hearts with the reality of the power of God. That's what he was up to. And before they could grasp the power of his provision, he had to help them perceive the magnitude of their need. Jesus perceived their need, but that wasn't enough. Jesus had to expose their need so they could see. And there are times in the Christian life when when it just feels like every day is just this Endless exercise in inadequacy. And it seems like all God asks you to do is nothing but things that are impossible to do. And part of us, if we're honest, just just wishes that God God would just say enough already and dial back the pressure. God, could you please quit calling me to do impossible things? I'm done with that. Oh, 
oh, for grace to realize that those are the very points in your life when God is being most merciful to you. Yes. Yes, it is a severe mercy to reveal the true depth of our need for God. And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? What's he say next? Go and see. Go and see. God hasn't stopped doing that. He is all too merciful to us. And in his mercy, so arranges the circumstances of our life to take our minds and say, go and see. Go and see how weak you are. Go and see how insufficient you are. Go and see how what I have called you to do, you have no way of getting that done. And sometimes when we think we are all too aware of our inadequacy, God is just getting started. (laughs) Because he's a good shepherd. Don't miss the connection. He tenderly perceives our need and he deliberately exposes our need. And learning dependence is painful. Dying to self-sufficiency hurts, but it's a necessary death. It's a, a severe mercy. Why? Because it prepares the soil of our hearts to lay hold of the power of God by faith. You know what you can't do when you are confident in yourself? You can't trust God. The plant called trust God never grows in the soil of a heart convinced that it's not utterly inadequate. You have to be convinced of that if that plant's going to grow. And God confronts us with our need. He delights to bring us in situations where we can't do what we're supposed to do because he's a good shepherd. And he loves us enough to expose our need for him. He sees it. He exposes it. And lastly, he satisfies it. He satisfies our need. Look at verse 41. Taking the five loaves and the two fish... He looked up to heaven and said a blessing and and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Some of you might know this, but when Mark says 5,000 men, he's not talking about the women and kids. So odds are good... If you read the account in the Gospel of John, you'll see John references this. There were a whole posse of kids and women with those guys. So chances are we're talking about at least and probably well over 10,000 people, if not more than that. Five loaves, two fish. And lest anyone think Mark's exaggerating, notice he inserts these little details like they were divided into groups by hundreds and fifties. Why, why, does he, why do gospel writers do stuff like that? Because they're eyewitnesses. That's why. And that detail is evidence that it was reasonable for one to look out on the groups and quickly get a pretty accurate estimate how many people there are. And by the way, 
there were probably almost, almost 10,000 witnesses to the miracle. And if Mark had recorded it wrong, nobody would have been believing the Gospel of Mark and nobody would have been passing on the Gospel of Mark. So details like that prove we can trust God's Word. And that when, when we read of miracles, it's a literal, historic account. I mean, since, since, since when did our working presumption be convince me that could be true? When Scripture speaks with eyewitness authority, we should listen and believe no less than we do a thousand things we read every day. It's true. It wasn't his imagination. It wasn't make-believe. That afternoon on the shore of a lake, Jesus performed a miracle, which proved, in the words of R.T. France, Jesus, listen to this, is not merely the healer of afflicted individuals or the rescuer of endangered disciples. He is the one who is not bound by the rules of normal experience of what is possible and impossible. I would say so. And for those who knew the Old Testament, for those who had eyes to see, it proves something. That feeding of the 5,000 proves something that the man standing before them wasn't John the Baptist, it wasn't Elijah, it wasn't one of the other prophets, it was God in human flesh. And it was exactly what Ezekiel had promised God would do. So back to Ezekiel 34. We read the first part, here's the second part. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. And I will rescue them from all places where they've been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and the countries. will bring them into their own land and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I'm done with trusting people to save. I myself will be the shepherd. And I myself will will make them lie down, declares who? The Lord God. And I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. When God delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt in the Old Testament, what did he do? He led them into a wilderness, sound familiar? And gave them manna, bread from heaven, for 40 years to satisfy their needs. But that was just a taste. No pun intended. Just a taste. Because one night, in a stable in Bethlehem, the great shepherd himself showed up. And 30 years later, he, he took physical bread in his hands. Physical bread and broke it and gave it to the disciples. Do you realize those are the same hands that made the world? Those are the same hands that made you in your mother's womb. Those are the same hands that even as they broke that bread and it crumbed, the crumbs fell between his fingers and dropped on the ground. Those are the same hands that that very moment, Colossians 1, 
were holding the entire world together. Those hands got dirty with your food and gave it to you. Friend, don't ever think God doesn't care about your physical needs. Don't go over-spiritualizing God more than he does. He cares for physical needs. He broke physical bread. He gave physical bread to satisfy a physical need. He's intimately aware of all our needs and eager to satisfy our needs. But lest we turn Jesus, because we can do this, into some sort of divine soup kitchen, Mark makes a critical observation in verse 34. Look back there. 34. Jesus saw the great crowd. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So what did he do? Did he feed them immediately? No. No. He began to teach them. Oh, we have to be careful here. He began to teach them many things. What what did he teach them? Mark 1. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus didn't just show up to satisfy physical needs. He showed up to meet and satisfy spiritual needs. Because the next morning, every one of those people woke up physically hungry. But for those who had ears to hear, for those who heard the word of the gospel and believed the truth of how they could be made right with God, they awoke spiritually satisfied. The next day, the next day, and the day after that. Realizing that they could trust the great shepherd to not just meet the needs of their body, but to satisfy their soul. To to reconcile them with God. That they would know the joy of intimate relationship and fellowship with the shepherd they'd run away from. Many of you, many of you listening to me are wealthy in the eyes of the world. And if you think of something this afternoon that you want, you will go out and buy it. You know what you can't buy? The bread of life. You can throw all your credit at it sell your house, empty your retirement account, you still won't be able to buy the bread of life. You can't buy food for your soul. You can't buy intimacy and friendship with God. You can't buy that kind of satisfaction. Here's the good news of the gospel. You don't have to. You don't have to. Isaiah 55, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, Come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Oh, this is a word for us. Why do you spend your money? Why do you throw your life away for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food and climb your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. What, What do we need to hear? What do we need to incline our ear to that our soul could live, that we could be satisfied in God? I'll tell you what it is. 
hearing, listening. What's that point to? The word of God. You want your soul to be satisfied? You know what you need? You don't need a beach house. You need to listen and meditate on the word of your creator to you. That's going to satisfy you. Why? Because you were made to know him. And in the word, as I said earlier, this isn't just ideas. This is God revealing himself to you. So you might be satisfied and know how you can be made right with him through the life, death, resurrection of Jesus and and live the rest of your life following him. And no matter what what cost and inadequacy you confront in the path of following him, you can say without a doubt every step of the way, that God, my God, is enough for me. He's going to convince you of that through his word. Deuteronomy 8. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. He satisfies our need personally and he satisfies it fully. He did it through physical bread. He's doing it today through the spiritual bread of his word. He's a good, good, good shepherd. Let me conclude with this. Because there's one last thing we need to see. About our shepherd. There's something else Jesus did on that day that he's still doing this day. Think about it. Who provided food for 5,000 people? Jesus did. But who gave it to him? Not a trick question. The disciples. The disciples gave it to him. Ordinary people like, like you and me. You want to know how to find satisfaction in God instead of the stuff of this world? Well, I just told you the first part. Meditate on the word of God. You know what the second part is? Join a church. Join a church. Don't just show up on Sunday, though. May God feed you through the preaching of his word. But, but we need more than that. We need to spend time day in and day out with brothers and sisters in Christ. Because God will use them to deliver his word to you. He'll, he'll use their encouragement. He'll use their correction. He'll use text messages and long conversations and, and everything in between to bring, to deliver the truth of his word into your life. No less than he used the disciples having provided the food to then give it to the crowd. And the words that you and I will speak, the words of truth that we will speak to each other, often sound really pretty weak. You know, maybe you've, you've listened to yourself talking to, to your toddler or your teenager or your parents or, or your friends, and you, and, and you tried to speak the truth about God or something from his word, and you, part of you speaking, the other part of your mind is listening and thinking, that was so lame. <laughs> I mean, I think they're just being polite. Um, that didn't even make sense. I have no clue what I was just trying to say. It didn't make sense to me. I, I don't think they got it. I mean, they said, thank you. Weak. I, I have to be the worst walking advertisement for the truth about God ever. You know what God says to you when you feel that? Five loaves. Two fishes. Five loaves. 
two fishes. Go and see. Translation, it's about time you realize you don't have what it takes. Five loaves, two fishes. But I'm going to make it sufficient. You don't have to fear. Don't, don't let your inadequacy cause you to go scampering for 200 denarii and the human solution it represents. I am the God of the impossible, and where sin and weakness abound, grace abounds what? All the more. And God could just move us to the side and call in a professional spiritual feeder. But you know what? He doesn't do that. Why? Because he delights for his power to be made perfect in weakness. So that everyone around you is convinced, friend, that you didn't raise those kids. You didn't earn that job title. You didn't make that money. And you didn't build this church. God says, I did. I'm the great shepherd. You're my sheep. And it's about time you got that right and quit trying to shepherd yourself and shepherd people around you instead of helping all of you love and be amazed by and trust the great shepherd. You're the sheep. You're inadequate. What's new? It's my job to provide. It's your job to trust. Friend, he perceives your need. Even this week, he's exposing your need. And he has promised to satisfy your need. Through the truth of his word, the care of his people. So much so that you will have all you need for life and godliness and leftovers. Let's pray. Oh, Lord. We just want to begin by confessing that we're sheep. We've forgotten that. Help us remember. And we thank you, Father, that you are a good great shepherd. And Lord, I pray where any one of us uh, walked in today angry or frustrated that you hadn't met or satisfied a particular need in our life in a particular way, that we would respond with humility and thank you for letting us linger in a time of confronting our need. Thank you for being merciful enough to not just meet all our needs immediately, but to confront us with them, expose them, so that we're forced to look to you as the only one who can. Give us more humility to not doubt your goodness when you're doing that. And to believe you'll be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.